This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool. And come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Have a busy show for you tonight. Uh, coming up a little bit later, uh, in the second hour, in fact, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, will weigh in with our uh, monthly paranormal news roundup. And we have some great stories, including a crying boy painting in the UK blamed for uh, a number of house fires. Uh, Is the painting cursed? We'll find out. And then uh, the big Millions Against Monsanto march is happening uh, May 20th. We'll speak to the co-founder, co-manager on that one. Uh, His name is uh, James Connor. And um, uh, not sure where you weigh in on the whole GMO issue, but you'll want to catch that discussion. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, James Connor, both coming up in the second hour. Uh, we are about to delve into a um, quite a remarkable discussion. I had Len Caston, UFO researcher, freelance writer, on with me uh, on Coast to Coast. We did three hours a couple of weeks back, about a month back. Uh, we're not going to have three hours, unfortunately, uh, to talk about the reptilians uh, with Len, so we'll get somewhat of a, a more truncated version, but uh, looking forward to this conversation immensely. Uh, he is going to uh, reveal the uh, the reptilian empire's influence on Earth and their conquest of twenty four or twenty one other star systems uh, over the millennia. He is a uh, as I say a UFO researcher, freelance writer, former member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and the Mutual UFO Network. A feature writer with more than fifty published articles in Atlanta's Rising and New Dawn Magazine and uh, the author of The Secret History of Extraterrestrials and Secret Journey to Planet Serpo. His latest is entitled Alien World Order, The Reptilian Plan to Divide and Conquer the Human Race. Len Caston, climb aboard. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good, Richard. Nice to be with you. Uh, 
the idea this to me is is r- disturbing to say the least the idea that uh, the reptilians this rather aggressive to say the least race of uh, extraterrestrials uh, they're not out there they're underfoot and they have been for quite some time talk to me about where these reptilians come from how long they've been here and how they got here they've been here approximately uh 900,000 years, long time. They were here long before we were here. And uh, that's why they, they consider this to be their planet. Uh, however, things have changed uh, because of their attitude towards the human race and what they've done elsewhere in the galaxy to kill uh, humans. So it's really a knockdown, drag out, stalemate at this point between the human race and the reptilian race because they are still here, and uh, they're, not, they're not planning on going anywhere. They originally are from the star system Draco, which I think most people know that by now. That's their home world, but they, they travel all over the galaxy because they've had spacefaring technology for many, many, many thousands of years. And uh, so that's how they got here. And as the name implies, uh, they, they resemble... Uh, reptilians. Describe them. What, what do they look like? How big are they? Uh, what sort of unique features do they have? Well, they do tend to have a greenish scaly skin. They do look somewhat like a crocodilian face, but then that's, that's, those features have gotten softened over the many thousands of years, and they are, don't look quite as repulsive as uh, they would have otherwise. They don't look like crocodiles anymore. Uh, actually, uh, they say the females are actually quite attractive. So uh, they tend to be taller. They're probably about eight feet taller. The Draco, the Draco are approximately eight feet in height for the most part. Uh, the Draco, the original Draco subrace, does have wings. They do have wings that they fold behind them. Uh, they are really the most senior of all of the reptilians. Then there are, then there are also reptilian uh, crossbreeds that we call the greys. And we've been dealing with the greys for a long time, ever since um, Eisenhower had that famous meeting with them in 1954, in which he opened the door, not really realizing what he was doing. Uh, that was in February of 1954. And uh, so that was giving them more or less an opening into abductions. And they have been abducting tremendous numbers of people all over the world ever since. And give us a sense of their their underground civilization here on Earth, which you say uh, began almost a million years ago. It's a very extensive uh, it's very extensive uh, facility. They have uh, they have basically have a, a an empire down there. Uh, it's mainly under the Indian subcontinent, between uh, Benares in India and uh, Tibet. They the Indian su- surface. People on the surface refer to them as the Nagas or the Snake People because they're known to be there. And, of course, they have tremendous technology, which they've had for a long time. And I covered all that in the early part of my book, uh, where they come from and how they develop their technology. And so they have high-speed trains uh, operating at supersonic speeds. They can cross the globe, all over the globe, in a very short time, even faster than jet planes. And uh, the, the whole, the whole uh, subsurface world is, is, is like a grid of their uh, tunnels. 
and uh, some of the some of the uh, some of the my lab facilities that our military has been involved with does connect up with their subsurface world at various points. That was the case with uh, with the colony, the Nazi colony in Antarctica. The reason that the it was that Hitler wanted it there at that particular location was because it tied into their their underworld empire there under the North Pole, under the South Pole. So uh, there there are connections there all over, and uh, it's, just, it's it's staggering, really, what's going on down there. You you mentioned. Uh the um, the reptilians being referred to as the snake people. Uh, I believe there are other legends that refer to the serpent people. We have examples, and you have pictures in your book. Uh, the you know the serpent prominently displayed on uh, on the the death mask of um, of Tutankhamun. We right. have the the um, the Anunnaki uh, Zechariah Sitchin uh, describing the Anunnaki as uh, the uh, as appearing to be reptilian. We have the snake in the Garden of Eden. Uh, is there a connection here with all of these legends? Absolutely. And you didn't you didn't mention the the snakes that are on the caduceus that the AMA uses for its insignia. Right. Right. That's that's not an accident either. <laughs> but the the the, uh, the snake on the on the, the the pharaoh's crown is really the most outstanding. That all the pharaohs, I think, from the 18th dynasty on would all have that snake on the crown with it poised as if to strike. Uh, that really links them very, very obviously with the, what we now call the Brotherhood of the Snake. And uh, I think the, probably the best writer on that subject is somebody named Xaviant Hayes. And I quote him extensively in my book because he's done the most research on that book. Yeah, he's good. He's been on the program a couple of times. Yeah. Oh, has he really? Okay, great. Yeah, he's terrific. He's terrific, and he wrote a, he wrote a an endorsement of my book too. It's in my book. So you know that's what's been going on, and uh, as the human race grows in spirituality, see they they have put an effective blanket over us to keep us from really uh, ex- exploiting our full DNA potential, which is tremendous. And we can really reach into, if, if our DNA was really expanded to its, to its proper dimensions, we could reach into the fifth dimension, and then it, then it would no longer be any kind of a contest. Well, you, you, have, you write that they, are, they have trouble existing uh, in, in the third dimension here. Yeah, so exactly. so uh, how, how does that work exactly? That, does that mean that they would be invisible to the eye to most of us? Uh, at, at certain points, or why do they have, first of all, trouble staying in the third dimension, and, and what does that mean exactly? Well, because it takes a lot of energy for them to manifest a three-dimensional body. They are fourth-dimensional creatures for the most part. So I think you're, you're probably aware of the fact that typically that the fourth dimension is really known as a, the dimension of the, of the deceased. That's the place where people go when they die. But the lower portion of that realm, which we now, which many call the lower astral, is where they is where they basically dwell. And but they can manifest in the third dimension whenever they want to. But it takes a lot of energy, and that's why basically one of the reasons why they drink human blood, because it, it helps them to, to to manifest in the third in the third dimension. And uh, so 
they were able to do that. They need the human life force. That's why they, you re, they're referred to as the vampires of Draco. They, they drink human blood. They consume human flesh. Uh, and, uh, and particularly, this is kind of grisly and disturbing to say the least, but they, they seem to have a, um, a predilection for, for, for children. Consuming children. Why children? children? Because their bodies are unpolluted, whereas adults have been eating the wrong foods for many, many years, and a lot of pollutants in their bodies, a lot of heavy metals, and so forth. <laughs> they want a pure. They want more of a purity of, of flesh that they're eating. But you know, Alex Collier, who was uh, have you have you talked to Alex Collier on your program? I've not, but I know that I guess since the age of fourteen, he he's uh, been in telepathic communication with the uh, the Palladians. Is he not? No, the Andromedans. The Andromedans, my apologies. Yeah, and uh, he is also another one who's in t touch with the Andromedans is Tolek. Do you know anything about Tolek at all, T-O-L-E-C? Uh, not so much, no. But yeah, he'd, be a good, he'd be a good one to get on your show. Uh, in any case, Collier said that the original confrontation, the very first confrontation between the reptilians and the humans, happened millions of years ago in the constellation of Lyra. Uh, apparently, uh, I've taken a lot of my material from Stuart Swerdlow's writings. Right. Great remote viewer. Have, yes. Have you had him on? I've not had Stuart. We've tried. I'll have to try again. Well, Swerdlow knows his latest book is The Human Humanity Saga, and he goes over a lot of this. Uh, he, he, he had personal experiences with, with the reptilians at Montauk when he was young. So he, he's had firsthand experience. He knows what, how they operate and what they do. And um, he uh, is aware of the fact that they uh, have been abducting. The reason for the abductions really is to get humans to literally to eat. And that's why they abduct many children and take them down there. It's a really a grisly game that they're playing here with us. And, but it's kept, well, it's, kept, it's kept very well covered up here. By, their, by the Illuminati. The Illuminati keep an effective uh, blanket over all of these activities. But child trafficking, child trafficking is one of the worst, most abysmal uh, things going on on this planet, and it's going on in large numbers. And they protect each other. The traffickers protect each other, but they have not stopped doing it. Len Kasten is with us. Uh, his uh, new book is titled Alien World Order, The Reptilian Plan to Divide and Conquer the Human Race. We're heading into a break here very shortly. Uh, but it sounds like that um, the seven billion souls that reside on the surface, uh, essentially we are cattle. We are a herd of cattle, um, a, a virtual buffet for these reptoid, reptilian uh, denizens uh, of the inner earth. Is that about it, Len? That's a pretty bleak yeah, picture. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's pretty much exactly what H.T. Wells wrote about in The Time Machine. All right, we'll get back to that. We'll take a Same time out. Syndrome. We'll come back. We'll talk about H.T. Wells. Len Kasten stays with us. Back with more on the other side of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Len Kasten, author of Alien World Order, The Reptilian Plan to Divide and Conquer the Human Race. Uh, just before the break, you, you mentioned H.G. Wells, and uh, you, you liken him uh, unto a, almost a prophet um, right out of the gate in the, in the book. And um, the story of uh, the time machine and the uh, the individual that goes the character that goes back in time and on the uh, the surface of the earth are these sort of this very simple agrarian society and then underneath are the the uh, the Morlocks. Yeah, but it's not back in time; it's forward. Forward in time. My apologies. Forward in time. Uh, so the the Morlocks and at first the character assumes that the 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 surface dwellers are sort of the higher up on the rung, the so, social rung. And these poor Morlocks are left under the ground, um, sort of as slaves. But in fact, it's the other way around. So take it from there and then explain how H.G. Wells may have been predicting um, the situation we now find ourselves in with the reptilians. Exactly. I mean, it was a kind of a strange story for him to write, really. He wrote it at a, while he was still in college uh, as, a, as a thesis, really. And uh, then it became a, a novel. Basically, he, the book takes the position that the Morlocks are like an ape-like creature, creatures that live underground, and they keep the surface world operating, really. On the surface, we have all these young, beautiful people living in a beautiful paradise. And uh, on first glance, it appears that uh, they are keeping the Morlocks working for them, when in reality, it's the opposite. The Morlocks allow them to, to graze up above and get healthy, and then they bring them down in patch, con, patch consignments and, and feast on them because they're cannibals. Uh, this was the story that he told in The Time Machine. And this was what the time, what the time traveler encountered in his journey to the future, and according to the book, it was something like 800,000 years uh, in the future of the 1940s when, when uh, Wells wrote that book. So it's kind of a strange story, and yet, yet uh, different two Hollywood movies and a lot of spin-offs from that story. It never goes away, really. So you have to ask, well, why is this? Why is this story even being considered something of interest to anybody? Because we would believe that already we are traveling to the stars. We will be soon, and we're, we will soon be godlike creatures able to tra traverse the galaxy. How are we going to revert back to these? senseless little people living on the surface and acting as food for, this, for the apes underground. Well, you know, all of a sudden it's, not like, it's, not, it's starting to look like it may not be such a bad prediction after all because that's exactly what's happening right now. Do you, think, do you think that H.G. Wells was trying to, um, to, uh, to send a message uh, to people that this was going on, he couldn't come out and say that there are reptilians living, uh, you know, underneath our feet. Uh, so he sort of disguised the story somewhat, uh, and he was trying to tell the world, we are, we are a, a buffet for the reptilians. Well, it might have been that, except if you read the dialogue in the book, uh, he really was, was not very, he was not very fond of capitalism. 
he himself was a socialist. In fact, he was more or less a communist, and he met with uh, he met with Stalin. He actually met with Stalin and with uh, some of the leaders of the of the uh, Russian Revolution. He he, uh, he he believed that capitalism was going to die and die out, and eventually we would revert back to arti- inarticulate little creatures, such as he described. Uh, I, I don't think he was trying to send any other message other than to point out. Uh, and I've, I have a quote in there about what he said about the fact that it's all going to it's all going to it's all going to fall apart ultimately because capitalism is doomed to failure. So uh, he, he was sort of a cynic about all those things. So he, it may have just been a metaphor for the excesses of capitalism. On the other hand, it is uh, strikingly. Uh, eerily familiar to what may be going on right now with the reptilians feasting on on humans. Yeah, uh, because yes, exactly. Because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that new book, 411, about the missing missing people. Uh, David Polites, uh, the David Missing 41 series of books. Yes, all these well, people yeah, that disappear so in see. national parks, never to be seen. Exactly, from. exactly, and in large numbers, and they never they never they never they never found, and the park rangers are not very helpful to Polites in getting information. So something strange is going on, and. Uh, it's uh, Alex Collier believes they're just being taken down there and being consumed. How many reptilians? Do we have a handle on how many there may be down there? Well, look, they have they have access to the to the surface world, and they have spaceships, and they can they can travel back and forth to other star systems. So, uh, at the time that Collier spoke about this, he said their numbers were around two thousand, but really they have other there have been other uh, trips that they have made back and forth to other star systems, especially Draco, and I think their numbers are much larger than that. But you see, it's not only the Draco, it's not only the, the reptilians, it's also the greys, because the greys are here in much much larger numbers, and they are the ones that are doing all the abducting, abducting and uh, creating the hybrid race. And this is, this is the greatest danger to... To our civilization is uh, the hybrids. Off the coast of uh, Los Angeles, um, I, I was talking with um, somebody on coast a couple of weeks ago. It was the anniversary of the Battle of Los Angeles, and um, it turns out that uh, just off the coast of, uh, of LA, uh, a lot of activity people have seen uh, craft uh, f- descending into the water and coming out of the water. Uh, is is that how the reptilians are accessing their underground, uh, their tunnels and so forth? There are underground, there are underground colonies. Absolutely, I mean underwater colonies. Yes, uh, actually, they've just discovered one near off of Malibu that looks like a very modern building, and uh, I just saw a photo of it. It looked like it looked like a, some sort of a. A, a, a factory of some sort. So you know, what, uh, the first thing that has to be realized is that uh, before Atlantis sunk, <clears throat> a lot of the Atlanteans did escape to underwater colonies. Uh, so uh, there are many colonies down there which which, which are inhabited by Atlanteans, and those and those they are human. But uh, also there was. A reptilian colony in the uh, discovered in the uh, sea of uh, let's see 
in let's see i'm not sure exactly where but it was in near near uh saudi arabia off the coast there in the black sea not in the black sea the red sea so you know there's both there's both down there uh Admiral Bur- Admiral Byrd, uh, who flew um, over the Antarctic, and according to his log, and it is disputed as to whether these are actually his words or not, but he supposedly, this is in the 1940s, I think, or the 1930s, was flying over the Antarctic, and uh, all of a sudden this barren wasteland gave, gave way to this verdant, um, almost not tropical, but this beautiful green paradise, uh, which he flew into, had, had Admiral Byrd discovered an entranceway? Uh, was he dealing with reptoids, or reptilians, rather, or was this another underground civilization? Well, you're talking about his diary? That yes. Was written up in his diary? Yes. Yes. Now, you know, was this discovery made during Operation High Jump, do you remember, or after or before that high jump? You know about high jump, I assume, right? Uh, uh, high jump would be the uh, is that the um, the the the, um, the Nazi base in the in the Antarctic? Yeah, we right. sent we sent a fleet of ships down there right. in, in 1947 to dis- to destroy the Nazi base. Fourteen ships, including an aircraft carrier, under the leadership of Admiral Byrd. Uh, actually, with Admiral Cruzen, Byrd was with him as, as well, and uh, their 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 mission was to basically destroy the Nazi colony under Antarctica, and they came at it from three directions. However, uh, they were repelled by flying saucers that came out of the water, and uh, destroyed one or two ships and killed about I think it was something like 68 Marines. And so, Bird had to go leave. He had to retreat. And he went back to uh, to uh, to his flagship, and uh, he gave he actually gave a report to Congress about it. And he, he what he recommended was turning Antarctica into a nuclear test test range. That's how strongly he felt about what was going on down there. But I think that the story you're talking about, the one which he found himself uh, in a uh, in a in like a paradise uh, of mild weather and beautiful scenery. That he reported in his diary, I, I don't, I'm not sure that was the Antarctic expedition. It certainly didn't happen during high jump. Uh, there was, well, there was his, his in 1926. There was the North Pole flight. Yeah, I think that's when that happened. Was during the North Pole flight. Ah, okay. Uh, there uh, were later. There were. Uh, there was later Antarctic expeditions. Uh, and actually, I'm hearing, I'm seeing it here. <clears throat> yes, he mentions Operation High Jump in 1946-47. Right. And that that was a military that was a military operation uh, that was basically okayed by Truman and uh, the hierarchy of the naval uh, the navy. And the plan was to to at that point to destroy the what was left of the Third Reich, which was now under Antarctica. And of course, they had a large colony in Argentina as well. So since the new leader of the Third Reich was was Admiral Dönitz, or pronounced Donitz. Uh, Hitler had turned over the reins of control to Dönitz. He was in charge of the submarine fleet, so he could patrol the waters between uh, Patagonia and Antarctica, 
and make sure that they could have shipping traffic back and forth. Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize that at the end of the Second World War in 1945, the German army surrendered, but the Third Reich never did. Uh, Third Reich so, never did. So right. Hitler's appointed vice chancellor then became the new Fuhrer, uh, and yep. they basically moved their base of operation from Berlin to uh, South America and Antarctica. Right. That's, and that's the legend, any or the story. Yeah, and the book I quoted from in my, in my book, uh, Grey Wolf, was, I think, the most... Uh, the most thorough discussion of that and how Hitler, how Hitler basically escaped from, from Berlin in the final uh, days of the war, and Martin Bormann helped him uh, get to a submarine base in the Canary Islands from which he traveled by submarine to, uh, to Argentina. And uh, in, 19, in 1943, he had, a, he had a house built there because uh, Bormann was funneling all kinds of gold and precious gems and tremendous amount of money into into the Argentine economy, and Juan Perón, who was also a Nazi, basically, uh, was taking care of it for them until they arrived. Then uh, we're heading into a uh, into a break here shortly. But um, the connection between Hitler and the reptilian race um, did the the reptilians use Hitler, and Hitler used the reptilians? Was there an exchange of technology? Tell me about that. Let's start at that now. Hitler, Hitler went into the dark side, you might call it, the dark side. Uh, he used to go to these seances where they chose to, where they tried to, uh, to bring up the uh, entities from the, from, the, from the astral realm. And that's when he, that's when he changed completely. And uh, that's when the reptilians and the Third Reich were, were connected. And Hitler then became, that's where he got all of, his, all of what the so-called wonder weapons that the Nazis had, the, uh, the jet planes and the flying saucers uh, from their connection with the reptilians. The Nazi bell. Reptilians were backing the whole fascist movement worldwide. And and Emperor Hirohito in Japan, likewise? Yes, Hirohito, Hitler, and Mussolini. All three, they were very easy to control from the, from the fourth dimension. And uh, the fascist movement was an attempt to enslave the planet and then the reptilians would take over at that point. All right, Len, I've got to take another time out. We'll come back and continue our conversation on Alien World Order, the reptilian plan to divide and conquer the human race. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Len Caston, UFO researcher, freelance writer, the author of Alien World Order, the reptilian plan to divide and conquer the human race. Uh, We were talking about, uh, well, these reptilians have this... Um, this methodology of uh, infiltration uh, and there's some hybridization going on as well. Uh, is this, and, and, and you mentioned earlier the, the infiltration uh, of the reptilians into the, uh, the Third Reich, into uh, uh, Japan during the uh, Hirohito uh, reign, even Mussolini in Italy, that these uh, tyrants... Uh, were being controlled, you say, by in in the fourth dimension by 
by the reptilians. Um, so this infiltration has been going on a long time. How does the hybridization uh, aspect of this plan work? When they're not eating us, they're, they're, they're mating with us, breeding with us? Yes, creation of the hybrid race was really what the abductions are all about. And I think by now most people know that there have been millions and millions of abductions, which everybody thinks are coming from UFOs. They're really coming from underneath. Uh, the, greys, the greys who work for the reptilians are doing all the abducting. And the creation of the hybrid race is their, the highest order, their highest priority. And they've created millions and millions of hybrids at this point. And the thing to understand about the hybrids who are part gray and part reptilian and part human is that they are not really human. Uh, their souls are not really human. In other words, a human soul is, cannot really be accommodated by a hybrid body. So basically they're aliens. And when their numbers reach a certain point, uh, perhaps even as little as 30% of the population, uh, alongside of other programs that they're working on in terms of depopulation and uh, slaughtering as many humans as they can, they will essentially uh, take over the planet. And why do they need to uh, utilize hybridization? create these hybrids when they could simply come up to the surface. I mean, these are savage warriors. They could, they could just simply invade the surface and take over that way. Why do they need to do it uh, by stealth this way? Well, that's typically how they've always operated. That's what they did on Atlantis, exactly the same thing. They weakened, they weakened the, Atlanta, the Atlantean civilization from within through hybridization. And then when all of a sudden, when they, at a critical point, they came up and they came up and uh, took over and basically sank the continent. And uh, they want they want to be uh, they want this hybrid because that will make it easier for them to exist in the third dimension. Is that why? Well, the hybrids are basically aliens. They're, they're, they have both human and DNA as well as alien DNA. But because they have alien DNA, they have paranormal capabilities. So they're really superior to humans in that way, but uh, they don't have a heart chakra. They don't have the emotional component that we do, because humans really are fifth dimensional. We can create, we, we can reach into the fifth dimension. They're limited to the third and lower fourth dimensions. But basically, they when they reach the point where they have the power, they'll enslave they'll enslave what's left of the human race. I want to talk about the, uh, circle back to the abduction phenomena, and uh, this was a, a deal that was struck uh, supposedly in 1954 when uh, President Eisenhower was spirited away under the, uh, the, um, the pretext that he had, a, I guess, a, a dental emergency or something, and, yeah. and the, according to the story, he ends up with Hall, at Holloman Air Force Base in, in Florida. Uh, I, I, I believe the, the Bishop of Los Angeles was supposed to be in attendance as well, and some others, uh, representatives of the Vatican. And this meeting was uh, with the aliens, representatives of the reptilians and the greys, and exactly what was discussed. Well, this is the so-called Treaty of Greata, G-R-E-A-D-A, in which uh, they, promised, uh, they, they promised Eisenhower 
advanced technology, especially anti-gravity technology, and all they wanted in return was the, the right to abduct what they, they initially said was just going to be a few humans. There wasn't going to be very many, and that they would report on how many they would abduct each period and even give their names. That was the agreement. Eisenhower didn't see a problem with it because the technology that they were offering was so fantastic. So he agreed, and that began the whole abduction scenario. The first one that we know about was the one in 1961 in New Hampshire, the Betty and Barney Hill, the famous Betty and Barney Hill abduction in 1961. And ever since then, it's been growing by leaps and bounds, and now millions and millions and millions of humans have been have been abducted, and the the women the women have been uh, the DNA has been implanted, and the embryos are taken after the third month, and brought back up into their spaceships and down below, into my labs, and they take them the rest of the way and create a hybrid entity. And uh, all right, we'll uh, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, we'll talk about how these hybrids are reintroduced into uh, human civilization, uh, and what this all means for our future. Len Caston, Alien World Order: The Reptilian Plan to Divide and Conquer the Human Race, right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740 We are back. Uh, Len Caston stays with us. And this is a really bleak scenario, I don't mind telling you. Uh, We 7 billion plus souls on the surface of this planet are essentially a buffet uh, for the reptilians, this incredibly aggressive warrior race of uh, fourth-dimensional aliens that have existed on this planet, that live under the surface of this planet for nearly a million years. Uh, And you were mentioning before the break this treaty that was struck in 1954 at Holloman Air Force Base with President Eisenhower and representatives of the reptilians, an exchange of technology, or not an exchange, the, uh, the U.S., I would receive advanced uh, technology, anti-gravitics and so forth. In exchange, the greys and the reptilians were given permission to abduct humans. And thus began the hybrid hybridization program. Uh, how are these alien-human hybrids, which are essentially aliens, as you, as you have pointed out, how are they reintroduced into human society? And are they are they walking amongst us now? Is it possible... Uh, that they are um, now in the, um, in, the, in the corridors of power. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'd like to recommend a TV series that came on the air about, I think it was about 10 years ago, produced by Spielberg called Taken. Yes. So you've seen that? Yes, I have. You know the story. You know the story that, that uh, the hybrid that was created 
by the alien and the human was taken off the planet because it didn't it didn't have it didn't appear human enough to get by so that's what happens that's what they have to decide after the hybrid is born whether it would be comfortable in human society or if it would have to be removed to an underground base or to a spaceship uh, so only the ones that appear that can get by are left here to to continue to uh, live here and to get jobs here and to reproduce here. Uh, but basically, the best book on the subject by far is the one called Walking Among Us by David Jacobs. Yes. And I would recommend that book highly because in that book he gives the entire uh, scenario as to how they train them what they do is, uh, in order to make the hybrids able to get by in human society, they have to they have to train them in, in very small ways about how to get by uh, their manners, uh, the simplest jobs, peeling an orange, using an ATM machine, all of these things they have to be trained to do. And how they train them is they abduct other humans, and they have the humans that they've abducted train the hybrids. And that's, that's how it works, and they've been doing this now all over the planet for uh, hundreds of years. How can you spot one, uh, one of these hybrids? Well, you know, they're not easy to spot because uh, the women are beautiful. Many of the women are beautiful and very attractive, and uh, they're, they're highly intelligent. But, but the, main, the main difference is that they have psychic powers beyond what we have. And that gives them a tremendous advantage in just about every endeavor. Uh, if it came down to uh, a company trying to decide whether to hire a hybrid or a human, they would probably choose the hybrid simply because the hybrids were more intuitive and more psychic. So uh, that's, that's what the humans are up against. And that's why it's a slow process, a slow takeover, because once it reaches a certain point, uh, the numbers reach a certain point and it doesn't have to be they don't have to be in the majority uh they basically can take over uh do uh, they nation, nation by nation and maybe and then the uni then united nations do these hybrids still require human blood human flesh well the hybrids are living as humans and they are reproducing as humans so they're not they're not eating human beings they are more or less pseudo humans do they know? Do they know who they are? Are they aware? I think many of them do. I, you know, there's a lot on YouTube about this, and uh, but reading the book, reading the Jacobs book, I think is the best introduction to the subject because he covers it. He does hypnotic regressions. Yes. And every, all of his information comes from his personal case history. So he knows exactly what he's talking about. This isn't speculation. Uh, this is a professor emeritus at uh, Temple University. Exactly. He's retired now, yeah. Yes. Um, great, he's a great guy, by the way. and he, he, I've heard his lectures, and he's very, very, very good. Are these reptilian-human hybrids, are they betrayed by their aggressive nature? For example, I've done a number of shows uh, with people who talk about um, psychopaths in our midst, and these uh, the the world seems to be um, sort of the way, the rules of the world seem to be in the psychopath's favor, uh, and we find psychopaths in every every quarter. Uh, we they are they are they are bosses, they are surgeons, they are politicians, they might even be the head of the local parent teacher association. 
these are the people that that seem to rise to the top, uh, and they are they can be very charming, um, but they are they have no conscience. They are psychopaths. Uh, are are the, are the reptilian? Are we talking about reptilian human hybrids when we're talking about these psychopaths? You know, you use the term psychopath. Really, I would call them sociopathic. Really, more than psychopathic. The problem is they do not have a heart chakra, which we call. They just don't. They, do, they don't know how to love. So dealing with, with dealing with loveless people, and that make that gives them an advantage because they're not they're not tied down by the human human problems that we all have with with, relation, with relationships. So. Uh, it's not that they're psychotic, although I think that uh, the increase in drugs uh, along those lines has a lot to do with the fact that the hybrid population uh, is increasing. But, you know, they give themselves away because they do not have a conscience and because they're heartless, basically. They're very pragmatic, and they're very psychic. So, you know, that's, that's exactly why they're able to take over. Would a simple blood test reveal if a person is a hybrid? I've heard, I've heard a lot of people speak about the fact that typically they tend to be RH negative. Now, uh, I've heard it from many different sources. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, there's been enough about it that I'm beginning to come to the conclusion that it just may be true. O negative particularly is the, uh, the blood type that everyone's talking about, yes. That would be the only way I could think that they could be identified. Uh, and again, um, the idea from an evolutionary standpoint is the RH is this, is this marker in the blood. Uh, and the idea is if we, if we are descendants of, let's say, the, you know, the, like the rhesus monkey, we should all have that RH factor, that RH marker in our blood. But as you say, there is a small percentage of the human population that is RH negative. They don't have that marker. And then the question is, well, why not? Now, and then you, what you have to do also is put this together with the existence of the, of the Illuminati, because the Illuminati have the ability to, to know whether they're dealing with hybrids or with humans. And so they can always favor, because, because they're so powerful and so wealthy, and they control so many corporations, the banks, the media, they can put the hybrids in positions of authority because they recognize them. And so once again, the humans are sidelined and uh, start to become impoverished, really, living in poverty, whereas the hybrids are enriched because, they, because the Illuminati can do that. They, can, they, they control the banks. They run the banks, and they run the large corporations. They run Cargill, uh, for instance. They run um, Monsanto, companies like that. So these are the things that, that operate and that make it, hard for humans to compete, really, against the hybrids. Uh, Len, you speculate that uh, it's possible uh, that President Kennedy was assassinated by the CIA because he was on to this Nazi reptilian presence here on Earth. Talk to me more about that. That's strictly speculation on right. my part, because I, I do, I know, I'm positive that Kennedy was a good guy and was trying to do the right thing for for, the, for America and for the human race, and uh, he, that's why he was such a threat to them, uh, because he was gaining too much power, too much popularity, 
and uh, he was the one that gave the okay for the Serpo, for the Project Serpo Exchange Program when we sent 12 Americans to a distant star system. He was the one that gave the okay for that. So, uh, and of course, I think if you go back and look at some of the old videos, you'll see that he was the one who talked about the moon adventure. Yes. Uh, he, pushed, he pushed that because he said that was the new frontier. And you see, it was important that, that he do that because the, the reptilians are trying to keep us imprisoned here. They don't, want us, they don't want us traveling to the stars. As long as they keep us here under a blanket of uh, control, then that makes their ad ultimate, ultimate victory much more possible. Once we start traveling to the stars, like on, as, in, as on Star Trek, everything will start to change, and it will be, become a whole new ballgame. And, of course, as the human race expands its consciousness, that's our best weapon. Once we reach a certain level of consciousness, they can't, they can no longer control us. This and we will no longer be subject to mind control, no longer subject to propaganda, which worked so well in Nazi Germany. Once we get above that and we see, that from, we see where we are from a higher vantage point, then it, the game is over. The game is over. They can no longer uh, control us. We are here on Earth not because we, according to this, this narrative, we, we did not originate here on Earth. We are part of this human diaspora, uh, the human civilization or species uh, evolved uh, on other, in other galaxies, and we sort of were chased across the galaxy by these marauding reptilians. Um, why, why are our human ancestors or our human cousins, the Andromedans and, and so forth, why are they not coming to our rescue? Well, they are. In a lot of ways, they are. But they, they, we, they know that we have to do it ourselves. And they're, they're doing everything they can to help us from the inner levels and from certain uh, teachers that they've sent our way, like, for instance, what we call the Enlightenment that occurred in the 18th century, where they sent agents to really, uh, in terms of science, in terms of philosophy, uh, that was their doing. The Federation does what they can to help us, but ultimately we have to do it ourselves. And once we've done it, then we become a, then we become a very viable partner in the whole galactic operation. Uh, so they can't do it for us, but they can do what they can to help us. There is a, a legend that, uh, I, I don't, or a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal, no way of knowing really, but uh, that uh, President Jimmy Carter, when he was inaugurated, he asked to be briefed on uh, the ET UFO issue. Uh, and according to a witness who was in the, the Oval Office at the time, uh, said that after the briefing, Carter broke down and sobbed almost uncontrollably. Do you, and this is again a speculation, but is it possible that the, the reason that he was sobbing was that he was told how uh, seemingly intractable the situation is, that we are being ruled over by the reptilians? And this will be our last point before we say goodnight. Right, and I think everyone knows that Jimmy Carter was a very devout Christian, and the reptilians are very anti-Christian. And really, the advent, the whole, the whole story of Christianity was was really the result of the federation the federation and i talk about this in my book the federation basically created christianity to get the human race going in the right direction so i think carter probably understood what was happening in terms of 
the reptilian uh, the, the reptilian attempt to to basically erase Christianity. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, Len. Uh, a, a real pleasurable hour, a little gloomy, but uh, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so much for this. Okay, Richard, nice talking with you. You too, Len Caston. Alien World Order with Len Caston. Still plenty of show to come. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, and James Conner, the co-founder and co-manager of Millions Against Monsanto, a big march happening May 20th in Toronto and around the world against the, uh, the chemical giant Monsanto. In the meantime, please check out uh, the, the website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, and as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Canada, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. All of you, of course, listening in on one of our affiliate stations down the line. The podcast, of course, at Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and TalkZone.com. Those of you who uh, take the show wherever you go on your mobile device using either the Conspiracy Show app or the Zoomer Radio app, which are both amazing uh, apps and both free downloads. Uh, And also... Those of you who have subscribed to the YouTube channel and, and uh, catch our YouTube stream. Uh, incidentally, if you haven't, please check it out. Just go to YouTube, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and be sure to hit the subscribe button. Uh, we're, we've set a rather modest goal of 10,000 subscribers sometime in 2017, and only you can help us get there. And uh, speaking of the, uh, the YouTube channel, I neglected to mention first hour, uh, that we are not streaming live on YouTube tonight. However, the uh, the show will be available on the YouTube channel uh, in a day or two. Uh, but we will resume the uh, the live streaming on YouTube next week. And uh, I tell you, I, I miss the uh, the folks in the live chat on the YouTube channel tonight. But uh, again, we'll uh, we'll pick up on that tomorrow or next week rather. Uh, Ian is here. Ian Robertson on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. But uh, Albert and Ryan are off tonight. Uh, and that's why we're not doing the live uh, the live stream. Can't do it without them. Uh, we have um, quite an action-packed hour coming up. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, uh, will be here for our Paranormal News Roundup. She'll join us at the bottom of the hour. We do this every month, and uh, we've got some great stories. Normally on the, uh, the program, we have our remote viewing experiment, What's in the Box. We weren't able to do it this week. We'll do it next week. But Rosemary is uh, going to talk to us about remote viewers and what they should do if they get 
some sort of a, a premonition about a, a, a disaster that's going to happen in the future. And it might surprise you to know the, uh, the authorities are saying, we don't want to hear from you, remote viewers. We don't want to know about it. So we'll talk about that. What's the best thing to do uh, if you get a premonition of a disaster? We'll also talk about a painting in the United Kingdom uh, that's caused, or some believe, has caused a number of house fires. It's called the Crying Boy painting. And back in the 80s, there were a number of house fires, and the only thing left unscathed was this painting of a crying boy. And uh, we'll also talk about the little people of Alaska. That's all coming up with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, but first, coming up next week, a big march. It's the sixth annual march against Monsanto. Millions against Monsanto, it's called. And uh, this is happening all over the world. People up in arms about uh, genetically modified organisms. And of course, the, the company largely responsible for producing GMOs is Monsanto. And um, organizers have them in their crosshairs. Uh, as they try to educate the public about the dangers of genetically modified organisms. Coming up, we have James Conner, who is the co-founder, co-manager, I think I have that right, of Millions Against Monsanto. Hey, James, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good. How are you, Richard? Very well. So, uh, Millions Against Monsanto. Tell us about the event. It's uh, happening May 20th. Uh, May 20th is actually the March Against ah, Monsanto. Okay, yeah, there's some confusion there. The March Against Monsanto, and then this is Millions Against Monsanto. So when is right. this... It's hosted by Millions Against Monsanto, right. and I, I'm the uh, co-founder and manager. All right. So um, tell us about what's happening uh, at the event. Times okay. and, and what's going on. Yeah, okay. It's uh, Saturday, May 20th at 11 a.m. We will be meeting at Dundas Square. Um, there are going to be a couple of speakers there. I'll, I'll be speaking as well. Rachel Parent from Kids Right to Know will be there. Um, just so there's no confusion, there's also another event going on at the actual Dundas Square. It's the Rib Fest. So <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're yes. actually going to be um, occupying the actual intersection prior to the march. And that will go to Christie Pitts. It'll go up Young Street, then along Bloor to Christie Pitts. Mm -hmm. And it will end at the um, Farm to Fork Festival, which is the only um, non-GMO festival in uh, Toronto. And it happens every year. This will be the fourth one. Um, and that's where we'll be marching to. And there'll be speakers there. There'll be entertainment. There'll be lots of vendors and whatnot. Um, and it's going to be a great event. This is what the sixth year, I, I'm guess I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, two thousand twelve. Right. Okay. I believe was the first one. And, and uh, have you seen it? Uh, have you seen interest in in this uh, sw swell? Has there been a groundswell since two thousand and twelve? Well, our, our first march, um, which was a really simple march, I mean, we didn't put as much into it as we, we do now. Um, there were like about 3,000 marchers. I've noticed that every year it gets a little less. Um, Interesting. I think that people are just kind of saturated at this point, but there's also a lot more uh, awareness now. Right. So I guess people don't feel the need to go out. <laughs> well, you know, that's an excellent point um, because I think maybe people are feeling like, Marching is great. Raising awareness is great, but I need to do more. And, you know, I'll give you an example. My my wife, I call her the mighty Aphrodite. Uh, will she go into a grocery store and, and if she doesn't see local produce when it should be in season and it should be in the store, she calls for the manager and she gives them hell. Well, that's the way to do it. <laughs> and so I think, I think more people, I think people are becoming empowered that way and they're deciding I am going to vote with my wallet. 
Exactly, and that's our philosophy at Millions Against Monsanto Toronto. Yeah, it's uh, it, your dollar. Yes, and and um, I, I, you know, I want to I want to ask you about the um, the sort of the state of the um, this battle. When you look over in in Europe, for example, I think back in 2015, there were about 19 countries at that time uh, in Europe that had banned genetically modified organisms. Full uh-huh. stop. What's what, where? Where are we now in this battle against this behemoth and, and genetically modified organisms? Well, um, most of well, all of uh, the European Union has some something, uh, some kind of uh, labeling or some kind of provisions. Uh, Russia has banned GMOs um, completely. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada and the U.S. are really the only ones that don't have anything set up there's no labeling um and and the more alarming thing is that there is no uh government testing or independent testing basically what corporations like Monsanto do is they do their own testing they skew it yes. they uh basically buy off all the right people they submit their scientific uh conclusions and the government just takes them on their word and that's the result of a lot of cronyism that's going on, a lot of lobbying. Yeah, Dr. Shiv Chopra has been on the show, and, and a yes. former um, employee with uh, Canada Health, and, and um, he, he blew the whistle and said that, that it, Canada Health actually refers to uh, the people that it's supposed to be keeping an eye on uh, uh-huh. as their clients. So that uh, that uh, really speaks volumes, and of course, I know you've talked about this too, and that is the uh, uh, the FDA, the relationship between the, the the Food and Drug Administration in the United States and uh, Monsanto. Uh, yeah, the, the revolving door. Yeah, uh, the food czar was it uh, was it Michael Taylor? Michael Taylor. Michael Taylor ended yeah, up. He jumped back and forth between Monsanto and the FDA several times. Yeah, uh, talk about conflict of interest. Oh, totally! It's cronyism to the to the hilt. <laughs> Um, and and oh. there's a relationship between, like, these uh, regulatory agencies like the FDA and the EPA, they're all being bought off, basically, um, by corporations. I mean, corporations actually have more power in the government, I think, than anyone else. Mm. Well, that is, unfortunately, and I, I, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but that's, that's the definition of fascism. Yeah, it's corporatocracy, basically. Mm. Um, and corporations consider themselves to be persons under the law. Now, if, if that's the case, then and they were um, perpetuating these crimes against humanity, they should be held accountable as any person would. That's what I've always said. But <laughs> there's a lot of conflicts here. I mean, um, Monsanto says that their uh, products, their food are substantially equivalent, yet at the same time, they can turn around and say that they are unique, and so they therefore deserve to have ownership of all these patents. <laughs> it becomes intellectual property. Right, right. Um, let's just um, provide kind of a a primer here for listeners who have heard the term GMO bandied about, and they're told that they should avoid certain GMO products, but they're not really clear on why. What, when we talk about a genetically modified organism, and that could be a dairy cow, it could be a chicken, uh, it could be um, a papaya, what do we yeah. what is what do we mean by genetically modified? Well, basically, it's a living organism that has had the DNA of another organism forced into it. It's something that would not have occurred in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, there, 
is re- we really don't know what the impact is, is going to be on not only our health but the environment because of the inadequate testing. Um, so basically, uh, 98% of packaged foods on your grocery store shelf are GMO. Um, 98%? Oh, yeah. It's a huge amount. It, it packaged foods, I would say. And, and is, that, is that because uh, corn and the various um, uh, byproducts of corn, corn syrup and corn starch, is, is, is an ingredient yeah. in so many foods? Is corn the culprit? Is that the reason it's so high? Yeah, it's omnipotent. It's not just corn. No. But um, basically, the, most of the GMOs are used for um, animal feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the animal eats it, it affects that animal. And then when you eat it, it's transferred to you. You're, you're basically changing your DNA by eating this stuff. Um, some of it is used for fuel, um, but the rest of it goes basically to junk food. But like mm. we've got things like glucose, fructose, and uh, aspartame, right. which is the fecal matter of genetically modified E. coli. So they've genetically modified a bacteria in this case, yes. and that's aspartame. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> that didn't even, that uh, aspartame. I mean, that's a whole other show. But uh, um, to my memory, that actually just that didn't even get that didn't even require FDA. They, that just went straight through. Wasn't it Donald yeah. Rumsfeld? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that uh, sort of rammed it through because uh, he had. Um, I don't know. He, he had he had served on the Ronald Reagan uh, re-election campaign, and so uh, yeah. that was this was kind of his reward that he would uh, he would be able to get that that was on his wish list. Anyway, and it had been refused many times. Mm. Um, like uh, Monsanto has a history that plays out like a James Bond villain. <laughs> <laughs> it's really unbelievable. They're uh, responsible for DDT, which was ultimately banned. Um, they created Agent Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're a chemical company. They're not an agricultural company. And what they ultimately, the bottom line is making money. That's, they're not really concerned about the environmental impacts uh, of, of their products. They just don't want to lose one dollar. So their, their mission statement, or at least it used to be, is feed the world. And this was their, <laughs> their kind of their creed that, that um, you know, there is no way to feed seven and a half billion souls on this planet using sort of traditional uh, farming. And so we can increase yield and we can increase nutritional uh, value. Have they succeeded in either of those things, Absolutely James? not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, in fact, what happens, and this is part, my focus, uh, I mean, a lot of people are interested in um, – getting GMOs labeled. My, I, I support it. I, I, I do everything I can to support it. But my th- thoughts on this are any informed shopper can avoid them. And, and we're talking about voting with your dollar. What I'm most concerned about is the pesticides that are used because they can't grow these GMOs without their Roundup glyphosate pesticide. Right. So I would like to see that banned. Let's talk about um, let's talk about glyphosate when we come back. Uh, James Connor is with us, co-founder and manager of Millions Against Monsanto, Toronto, and uh, that event is happening May the twentieth. Kicks off at Dundas Square here in Toronto, but there are events around the world. Back with more here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with James Conner, co-founder, co-manager, Millions Against Monsanto, Toronto. Uh, I want to talk about glyphosate. And uh, this is, I guess, the, act, the, the chemical compound in things like Roundup, which is a very uh, uh, widely used uh, pesticide, the or herbis, herbicide. And the most. <laughs> the most. And uh, so the idea is that the, uh, the crop, uh, they, they, um, are, they, they genetically modify the crop so that it can withstand being absolutely doused and inundated with with this herbicide Roundup, yes. Um, so that it's that the plant doesn't die, that it's resistant to the herbicide, so that it can kill the weeds. The problem is that glyphosate uh, ends up in things like breast milk and in our in our bodies in our in our tissues. What what is what is the, what studies? Um, uh, have there been? I know there have been animal studies, studies on rats and so forth. But what yes. are the studies telling us about the the the, uh, the effects of glyphosate? Well, we do know that it's in our air, it's in our water, it's been found in vaccines. It's almost become ubiquitous at this point because mm. we're we're soaking the earth with it. Yeah, we're swimming and, in it. Yeah, we are. And um, what happens with the GMO crops is that. Eventually, um, the weeds become resistant, so they have to keep dousing more and more every year. And, and this thing about higher yields is totally false um, because organic farming can compete or outperform GMO technology and without the use of all of these toxic chemicals that are being dumped on the planet. And how long can we continue to do that? I mean, the birds rely on a lot of the insects that are being killed, so the birds are affected. It's, it's a chain reaction. It's It's going to be one of the most dangerous things that could happen to our ecosystem. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit, um, I'm sure in other jurisdictions as well, but I was reading recently about the one in California, and these are these are 700 gardeners and agricultural workers in the San Fernando Valley who claim their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma mm -hmm. has been caused by glyphosate. I'm sure you're watching that case uh, yeah. very carefully. And the, well, there's, there's many, many lawsuits out at this point. Um, the World Health Organization declared uh, glyphosate to be carcinogenic. And recently it's gone through in California that they have to label their Roundup product now, which they're not happy about, mm. and label that it is a carcinogenic. Um, it's also affecting the bees, the, the butterfly population. Um, it's affecting biodiversity. We're becoming a monoculture. We've, we've lost, I, I read a statistic the other day that was so alarming. Over the last uh, several hundred years, we've lost about 90% of our vegetables and fruits. Wow. It, it's, yeah, certainly and, the heirloom, all the heirloom species are going. Exactly. And their end game is to 
have ownership of our, our seeds of our food supply. I mean, the Monsanto seeds, you're not allowed to uh, use them the following year, which farmers traditionally do, the, the seed saving and sharing. They can't do that anymore. It's oh, these are the Terminator seeds. Have the, have, the, have the Terminator seeds come into market? I know they were working on it. I hadn't realized that they had completed the uh, the Terminator seed. Uh, any, it says right on the – you get Monsanto seeds. It says right on the, the bag that you have to follow very strict guidelines in terms of planting this. You cannot save the seeds. You can't – with any of their seeds. And then, of course, we've got the BT uh, seeds that split the lining of the insect's stomach when they eat it. Right. And then when you eat it, it gives you what little perforations in your gut. We call that leaky gut syndrome. Yes. I, there's and, a connection between that – some say the leaky gut syndrome caused perhaps by the uh, uh, the glyphosate and uh, in combination with certain vaccines, that may have some correlation, not necessarily causation, but correlation to things like autism. Exactly. And we see allergies, um, like it's, it's allergies are on the rise. Autism has been on the rise actually since the GMOs were first introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry, they're, very, they're basically the same thing. So you end up with a sick population that then has to take all, of, all kinds of drugs. So right. it, it really all goes down to the, the almighty dollar again. Well, the rest of the world seems to be waking up. We mentioned uh, the, the EU, uh, I, I believe Germany, France, Greece. Uh, I, I'm not, don't quote me on this. I think England. Yeah. Um, Well, they've got labeling laws. Right. And yet we can't even get a labeling law passed in a place like California a couple of years ago. Liberal, progressive California because, you know, Coca-Cola and Dow, they all rose up and... A lot of money to to try and defeat that bill. And that's when Tammy Canal uh, started the march against Monsanto, actually, after Mm -hmm. that bill was defeated. So let's get back to the idea of, let me remind listeners, uh, James Conner is with us, co-founder, co-manager of Millions Against Monsanto, this big event in Toronto, happening elsewhere around the world as well, but the event in Toronto, where I'm sitting now, is May the 20th, and uh, it kicks off at uh, the Dundas Square, uh, and, and uh, the, the march will end at, uh, is it Christie Pitts? Yes, and right. that's the Farm to Fork GMO Free Festival. All right. So let's get back to the idea of, of uh, people voting with their feet or voting with their um, their dollars. And, you know, we've, we've seen some wonderful examples of this. I mean, you know, I'm a big free market guy, and here's a perfect example where the free market decided, you know, McDonald's, for example, now free-range chickens, no hormones mm-hmm. in their chickens. That's People like you and me and Ian in the other room voting with their dollars. Absolutely. That's the power that we have. Absolutely. I mean, marching is great, but so what else can we do? Who else should we be targeting uh, in terms of uh, you know voting with our dollars? Well, I, like I say, my main focus is uh, pesticides. I would like to – I actually – I was going to talk about this at the march, but I'll give you a little sneak peek. All right. <laughs> um, Mike, I want to see glyphosate banned, but co- contacting our government doesn't usually have much outcomes. So I am appealing now to the First Nations and working with Idle No More. I would like to see glyphosate banned on all native territory across Canada because they're self-governed and they can do that. Ah, and how are they using it? How are they using it? 
Uh, it's really more to send a message. I, I don't know <laughs> whether it's being used on reserves. Uh. The thing that inspired me was that my mother, who recently passed away, uh, she was she's not native, but she was living on a reserve. And I found before I got into this uh, activism, I found a bottle of a uh, large bottle of glyphosate in her garage. And I got really upset because she was ill. And I immediately made the connection between the two. I couldn't believe she was using this in her garden. Uh-huh. So I, then I started thinking about reserves. And I thought, well, if we just ban it on all the reserves and make a lot of noise about that, that's going to send a message to the government. You're gonna, obviously going to have to have a buffer zone as right. well. Right. So right. it's in its infant stages, but it's something that I, I really want to try and get out to all of uh, the First Nations across Canada. Um, I want to ask you about this one's always troubled with me troubled me and you can probably help me decide one way or the other and that is you know the idea that all gmos are bad we have to they have to put them all you know to one side of the ledger i want to ask you about, and I, i'm sure this has come across your desk this discussion i want to talk to you about golden rice oh uh, yeah and this is uh, for people who don't know this is a uh, a project going on in the developing world where about 70% of people's nutritional needs come from rice. It's just a huge staple. Now, the other problem they have in the developing world, with young people in particular, is uh, a, you know, a early childhood death and blindness because of a lack of vitamin A in their diet. And so the tall foreheads decided to genetically modify the rice uh, to, increase, or to, to, uh, to put the, uh, various beta carotenes in it uh, beta carotene synthesis, I think it's called, uh, which which are sort of the precursors of vitamin A, in order to eradicate um, blindness and and uh, early childhood death in the developing world. That sounds on the surface like a pretty commendable, laudable effort. What do you say to that? Uh, Golden Race is a Trojan horse designed to allow biotech companies to gain access to reluctant markets. Hmm. Um, the technology is unready for implementation. The crops haven't proven adaptable to the climate of the countries that might benefit from the yields, and the yields are low. Uh, studies show golden rice cures vitamin A that show it cures vitamin A deficiency are flawed. Um, it's only found in animal products. Golden rice has been engineered to contain higher amounts of beta carotene, which must be converted by the body into retinol. So, like, there, there's a lot of um, false claims out there ah, about okay. that. They they try to be uh, pretend that they are feeding the world and that they're doing something the same as Bill Gates and Bono, who are heavily invested in Monsanto. Oh, is that right? Oh, yes. Well, Bill Gates owns 500,000 shares. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And Bono, who likes to purport that he's feeding the world as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It, it, to me, it's like giving out craft dinner at the food bank. <laughs> yes, exactly. Interest, that's, a, that's a very apt analogy. Yeah. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. Let me remind listeners, James Conner is with us, co-founder, co-manager of Millions Against Monsanto, happening May 20th here in Toronto. How many other events around the world are there? Oh, it's, it's in almost every country and every city in the world. Hmm. Um, it's huge. I don't know the exact number, but um, hmm. for the past six years, uh, every... It, country in the world. After the march, you can see there's usually uh, videos produced with all the different cities that participated. It's a huge number. Uh, give us the list of the worst sort of GMO products in your estimation. 
uh, corn is at the top of the list, absolutely. Right. Uh, but then they're they're modifying um, alfalfa now, and that's animal feed again. Mm-hmm. So these traits then are transferred into us when we eat them. These animals are suffering terrible diseases as a result. Um, corn for sure. Soy is another one to avoid completely if you can. Yeah, even I don't even, even consume organic soy, and I'm 100% organic. Mm. Uh, canola, avoid that like the plague. Right. Um, the sugar beets, which a lot of uh, conventional sugar is made out of glucose, fructose, which is another corn product. Um, it's, it's pretty easy. There's a group called the Dirty Dozen that have the most pesticides. That's another one you should avoid. Right, right. Um, so I would suggest organic an organic diet. That is, is what I that's what I say when I say vote with your dollar. Don't support companies that support GMOs. And we, as you said, we've seen it happening with um, McDonald's losing a lot of revenue, Coca Cola, all these fast foods. I mean, we came down on Subway a little while ago. They had to change their menu. Uh, they had yoga mat ingredients in their buns. <laughs> well. James, um, I wish you the best of uh, success on May the 20th, and uh, here's to many more. Well, actually, here, let's hope we don't have to have many more millions that against Monsanto. Uh, and uh, you know what? You, um, you, uh, you, you kind of convinced me on the, uh, the golden rice issue because I was kind of on the fence on that. But uh, what you're saying makes sense to me. Uh, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. James Conner co-founder, co-manager, Millions Against Monsanto, May the 20th here in Toronto and around the world. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, is coming up next. Stay tuned. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Richard, I've been real busy lately. I've been doing a lot of Sasquatch research and paranormal road stories. Oh, wow. Sasquatch, are you hot on the trail? Well, I am, but I think Bigfoot is interdimensional, so we're likely not to have physical evidence. Yeah, you and I have talked about that. Uh, that certainly explains a lot. Uh, you know, footprints uh, that seem to stop in the middle of the woods and go nowhere. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think there may be something to that. Uh, a growing body of evidence indicates that uh, there are these elements to it, and uh, so I've been putting together a lot of research. All right, well, I'm sure there's a book coming, and we'll look forward to that. Indeed. Uh, I want to talk to you about this was this was a story that appeared on a uh, a blog that's sort of dedicated to extrasensory perception and remote viewing and uh, ESP and so forth, and it had to do with uh, people that have premonitions or remote view a disaster, uh, and the suggestion was they shouldn't bother contacting the authorities. What do you make of that? I agree entirely. It's a very problematic area. The fact of the matter is people do get precognitions and premonitions of events and sometimes big disasters. We usually realize it after the fact. We may not get all of the information 
that would indicate exactly what's going to happen, where and when. And the problem is that when you alert authorities, you can't give them any helpful information uh, because of those missing pieces. And right. you're likely to be ignored and maybe even written off as a nutcase. <laughs> well, because in some cases, uh, if, let's say, for example, and this was cited in the blog, the, uh, the Madeleine McCann investigation, this was the, uh, uh, the girl that disappeared back in 2007 when her fa- family was on vacation in Portugal. And the authorities, there was just a deluge of of tips people claiming to have I mean never mind tips you know people think they may have seen something or whatever they have to chase those down on top of all these people oh I had a dream I had a premonition it just it can it can muddy the water it can because uh, even though people do get accurate impressions and psychic information nobody is a hundred percent accurate and they may see pieces of things that they then project onto to try and fill out the picture but there's an example from history about the spectacular failure of this kind of reporting and it it goes back to the 1960s and 70s -hmm. there was a disaster in wales where um, a coal mountain came apart and there was a massive landslide that hit a very small village and uh, it killed a lot of children in school and some adults. Well, it came out later that many people in the village, uh, including the children, had had premonitions and even dreams uh-huh. that, some, that the mountain was going to slide down and people were going to be killed. So there was an effort that w- went underway to establish premonitions bureaus on both sides of the Atlantic in London and New York with the idea that uh, they would just collect all the tips from people having psychic uh, hits on things and hopefully avert catastrophes like this. And sad to say, Richard, they were both uh, abject failures uh, for just things that we mentioned. Nobody could get an entire uh, accurate picture of something that was going to happen. And some of the predictions were just, um, you would say, off the wall. Did they... Uh, uh, inaccurately see events or uh, one possible explanation is you get a premonition about something but because forces change the event doesn't take place something prevents the event from taking place so it got to be very very problematic and uh, the bureaus only lasted about a year or so and then they closed okay but let me give you um, an, um, a for instance let's say you're manning the counterterrorism desk at homeland security now, and let's assume someone, well, Ingo Swan has, has passed on, but someone, a remote viewer uh, with a pretty good track record, maybe it's, or a psychic, maybe it's a Yuri Geller or someone like a, an Ingo Swan, and they call the home, you know, the counterterrorism desk and they say, I had a premonition, I see something happening in Chicago, whatever, on such and such a date. What do you do with that? I mean, if you have someone who's got a pretty good track record, don't you have to consider that? My feeling is that the government has relied upon highly trained individuals who are looking at those sorts of things all the time, and they follow very strict protocols for how they get their information. So, uh, yes, but when the average citizen calls up with something, it's likely not to be taken seriously, or who knows, you might even become a suspect. Right, right. Uh, And there's there's that hazard as well. Now, um, let's say that um, a government bureau started getting a lot of similar claims that started fitting a pattern. Well, that would be something then to, uh, to take notice. But it usually never even gets to that point because the information is automatically disregarded. 
you know, after 9-11, after the terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center in 2001, uh, we again had this hindsight of uh, premonitions and precognitive dreams and whatnot uh, about this disaster. But again, they were in pieces, and nobody had put together uh, the entire scenario on that date in that way. And uh, I think uh, some of that may have to do with the fact that our our psychic ability is uh, not very well developed, and maybe in the future we'll be able to be like uh, that film Minority Report, where uh, Tom Cruise starred, uh, starred as a cop who paid attention to uh, information from individuals who were called the precogs. They mm-hmm. would get precognitions of murders and crimes that were about to take place, and they were highly accurate. Maybe we'll get there in the future. All right, we'll take a time out. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Paranormal Investigator, the website VisionaryLiving.com, back with more of our Paranormal News Roundup right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us once a month at this time for our Paranormal News Roundup, a look at some of the uh, fascinating stories in the news regarding the supernatural and, uh, well, even cryptozoology. Now, here's a story uh, that comes out of the uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, way back uh, in the, uh, the late 19th century, I think around 1895, and it had to do with a strange sighting, a number of witnesses. They call it the Burbank Bat Light. The Burbank Bat Light. Tell us, Rosemary, what's this all about? It's really a kooky story about this fiery ball of light that was seen literally emerging from the ground, and uh, it it seemed to spread uh, fire shaped like wings, bat wings, and it would roll around uh, and scare people and uh, bob along, and then after a while sort of collect itself, sort of roll itself back up and disappear, and nobody knew uh, what it was, but it was um, quite frightening, and it was seen on a number of times. It looked like a a creature made out of fire that was struggling. Hmm. And uh, it's it's kind of hard to assess what actually took place, and there are a couple of reasons why. Um, the descriptions of it and the fact that it was uh, typically seen on hot nights and it, it was a repeating pattern uh, indicate that it may have been some sort of really weird natural phenomenon, um, even with its kind of bizarre shape. Like ball lightning or something? Uh, um, Maybe not ball lightning, but maybe kind of an earth energy hmm. that um, was able to look like this, look like uh, a ball of fire when actually it might have been some sort of electromagnetic energy. But this also happened at a time uh, in the late 19th century when these sorts of stories were hoaxed a lot in the media as a way of gaining uh, readers and subscribers. And Fake news from the Los Angeles Times? <laughs> Say it ain't so. <laughs> and uh, uh, these things did happen all over the country. 
and um, this was uh, rampant during the late 19th century and, and into the early 20th century. Hmm. And most of these stories had a supernatural theme to them. So when I see these stories from a certain era, uh, my eyebrow goes up a bit, and I have to wonder, is it one of those, or is it a, a legitimate story about something supernatural? So this may go down as uh, unknown mystery, uh, an unknown mystery light um, that uh, had a peculiar behavior but uh, was not a demon or an entity or, or anything that had some sort of intelligence. It was not a devil coming out of the molten earth. Right. Well, I mean, have you ever, in all of your years in research, ever come across an account similar to this? Well, that's the other thing, Richard. I have not. You know, um, I've come across, uh, you, know, you know, we have a large body of ghost lights, for example, the famous uh, lights down in Texas right. and in North Carolina. And uh, there is a phenomenon called earthquake lights. And this is an area, of course, where uh, there's a massive uh, fault line, the San Andreas Fault. Um, so you would have uh, possibly earthquake um light energy being generated in that area. But hmm. I've never come across a description like this, of this fiery ball with the bat wings. That's very peculiar. Indeed. Okay, this story, I tell you, is, um, I've never read anything like it. It's amazing. It sounds like something right out of Rod Serling's, not The Twilight Zone, but his later show called The Night Gallery. Do you remember that? I do. I love that show. Yeah, me too. So here we have this painting of a, uh, it's called Crying Boy, and uh, uh, it's been owned, I guess, by a number of owners in the United Kingdom, and uh, apparently they are blaming this painting for a series of fires in the 1980s. They say the painting could be cursed. Well, it's an, uh, an interesting story that could have different explanations, and the cursed painting is one of them. I do believe that it is possible to curse objects. John Zaffis and I, uh, you know, we've been on your show talking about haunted yes. objects that have been cursed. And if someone is um, uh, intending to put a curse into something while they work, they can do that. An artist would be able to do that. Uh, something could become cursed just out of sorrow or anger or depression. If an artist is in a bad state and maybe, um, you know, prone to to being uh, overtaken by the dark side of the spirit world, that could come through as a curse on an object as well. So what happened with this painting? Well, this um, people would have fires uh, in their home. Uh, that they, they would get the painting and the fire would erupt uh, in the home. And there were other crying boy paintings as well. This got to be um, uh, kind of a, a fear craze. Um, and uh, some of it was traced to um, a single artist who uh, supposedly did um, a number of these kinds of styles of paintings, a lot of different variations of young boys with tears coming out of their eyes. And um, there was suspicion that they all might be cursed uh, by this one particular artist. So was this also an urban legend kind of um, mild panic, so to speak, because these things do happen, and uh, things uh, start going around in the media. Now we have social media; uh, goes viral in an instant. But uh, back then, uh, in the 80s, when these were taking place, uh, stories would appear in the newspaper, and so uh, people might feed the urban legend by 
uh, imagining that anything bad that happened to them, uh, perhaps fires that would occur under other natural circumstances, uh, could be blamed on a on a painting, and it kind of fuels uh, the legend. Right. Well, so re- it, may, re- it may have happened. So it may have happened legitimately the one time where the fire is totally des- destroys the house, and the painting is unscathed, and then from there, because it, I, it mentions that the painting was mass or a crying boy type painting ended up being mass-produced. It just became one of those things that a lot of people ended up having in their houses. So the odds are, you know, you have a house fire, they have one of these paintings in the house, they go, ah, it's the crying boy. Right, let's blame it on the crying boy. Right. And, in fact, um, a newspaper in Britain actually uh, put out a call, you know, send us your crying boy paintings and we'll burn them all and get rid of the curse. And they were inundated. They were swamped. Hmm. So what is this, a combination of a genuine curse, maybe in, in one or two instances, and then mass hysteria for the rest? That's what it sounds like to me, was that um, based on what we know about the original, <clears throat> the original painting, uh, there might have been something peculiar about it. Uh, and it in turn spawned uh, an urban legend that took hold with similar kinds of paintings. And researchers uh, tried to uh, trace um, individuals who uh, were reported to be involved in uh, these cursed paintings, and they couldn't find them. Well, you know, that doesn't mean they didn't exist, but um, there wound up being some holes in the story, uh, as is often the case with urban legend. Uh, Urban legends tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies, and when people believe them, they take on reality. And we we see that all the time with things that start out as a fiction, and if people believe them, they become a reality. Sure, sure, I believe that. I mean, you can manifest uh, things like that. Uh, You mentioned that, you know, it is possible for for a painter to deliberately curse something. How would they do that, use a sigil of some sort and actually... If, if that were the case, could you find that sigil somewhere buried in the painting? Well, they could do it just through intention. Uh, and um, I'm not saying that the, the painter deliberately cursed this painting. Uh, he might have inadvertently cursed it uh, through, uh, let's say, if he was uh, very depressed and might have been under the influence of negative spirits. Uh, that sort of energy could then come out in... Uh, whatever work he did. But if you're going to deliberately curse something, you can do it just simply by intention. And it would be uh, imbuing the object with an energy by holding it. And certainly if you're painting something, you're putting your own energy into the painting. Mm -hmm. And you would hold an intention for a certain kind of uh, action uh, to take place uh, by the individuals then who would be the recipients of this. Uh, my feeling is that I don't think it, he deliberately cursed it, but it might have been an inadvertent curse, sort of a sad life curse. Right. And finally, we just have a few minutes uh, for this one, but uh, uh, the indigenous people of Alaska, they have some um, you know, wonderful tales about uh, shape-shifting whales and unexplained lights, a lot of paranormal activity up in Alaska, apparently. But it, one of the, the stories that has been handed down among the indigenous peoples of Alaska are these stories of little people. And now someone is actually going up there and they're going to research this. I mean, a proper scientific investigation. I think it's a great idea. Uh, Legends of little people are uh, everywhere in Native American lore. 
and uh, certainly in Alaska as well as throughout the North American continent and elsewhere around the world. Um, their counterparts are fairies in, in the Celtic countries. And I do believe that the Earth has these kinds of beings in them. Um, they're almost um, always similar in description in terms of their size, and um, sometimes they have exaggerated features like large noses or they dress in certain ways. Uh, and um, they're up to a lot of mischief, a lot. Uh, and uh, so I think it's interesting and uh, very good that somebody is attempting to put a formal study of little people uh, into the literature because we really need this. We researchers really need this kind of documentation so that we can compare it to other uh, traditions of little people around the world. You know, they're very active in Iceland. Yes. Oh, indeed. <laughs> yes. And of course, um, we had a story several years ago about it. Uh, an archaeological discovery, or I guess it was more anthropological, uh, the um, discovery of what they were calling the hobbits, the real hobbits, uh, a race of very, very tiny people uh, that existed sometime in the distant past. So there may be some, some truth to this. And I think one of the things that's important to remember is that cultures that have an oral tradition People tend to, to dismiss the oral tradition and say, oh, that's just the telephone game. One person says something and then the story changes. But these oral traditions are so carefully and closely protected by the community that if one person tells the story incorrectly, you've got the whole community correcting them. That's very true. And uh, they're passed on down through generational lines. Uh, very carefully. And yes, uh, in some cases there are variations of stories, but still the core elements of the story remain consistent. And uh, I've always believed that folklore and mythology have uh, an incredible amount of truth to them. There's truth about how human beings have encountered otherworldly presences uh, throughout history. Well, uh Again, yeah, we can't uh, be so quick to dismiss. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And uh, let me direct people once again to your fabulous website, visionaryliving.com. Check out the, uh, the bookstore section. 60-some, what, 66, 67 books now uh, published. It's quite <laughs> a lot. Somewhere around there. <laughs> All right, who's counting? All right, Rosemary, until next time, thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Good night. Good night. That's it for us. All right, we will uh, be back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.